Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Comfort Free Conversations, and we're here to undo everything you think you know. Hey David, welcome to Comfort Free Conversations. I'm glad to have you. Um, this is a talk that I'm I'm pretty excited about. Um, it's one of my. I think we'll get into really the heart of what I aim to do as a podcast. Uh, you know, I've been having a lot of freeform conversations, but this is the first time where I think I am offering my audience tools to dig into what I think is necessary and productive. So, um, so just like, what, let's tell you about yourself. So you are an artist. I know you also, I believe, did you do CS as well? Yes, I was a CS major at uh, U of I. And then uh, mm -hmm. later um decided to pursue art. I'm currently in the Art Institute of Chicago. Oh, that's awesome. I'm very glad that's to a... be on here. <laughs> it's crazy. So you go to the best university for coding, and then you go to the best university for, uh, for art as well. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Uh, I, but, um, I don't know if I did as well on the computer science part, but the art part I definitely enjoy a lot more. Well, understandable. Okay, but... um. As we, you know, get into the details of today, so like we talk about, it's kind of interesting and kind of funny how so many intelligent people, it seems, are still having drastically unproductive conversations and no ability to truly grasp what the other person is saying. Um, and I think it's very problematic. I think it's something that America particularly needs right now in the political field. In, in not even just the political field, but in any area of their life is how to have a conversation and what what is the what are you necessarily trying to communicate in the conversation that you're having? Would you agree? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, there it's, it's, it's very um, interesting because I think a lot of people who know a lot of things will legitimately experts in their fields don't always um make convincing conversation or um, empathetic conversation uh, with that with that knowledge. And I think that it is a huge obstacle in a lot of discourse. I, I think you're right, because the, the interesting thing is, I think the most misunderstood people are or happen to be geniuses. And I don't think like they do a very good job of allowing other people to see the genius that's in their head. I think they have a very hard time translating to the common person exactly what it is that they're trying to communicate or show people because that's almost like what makes them them as as a genius because they dis they think in such a distinct way or such a a way that sets them apart from the norm yeah it's a, it's a two-way street i think that for people who are you know noticeably unique in their understanding it's hard for everyone else to think the way they think but it's also mm -hmm. conversely true you know if someone's considered a genius um does that person have a sense of how the rest of us think and that's not always the case right absolutely I, yeah i think and i think that often reflects on the mental health of a lot of those kind of people um just as evidence to what you're saying they tend to have pretty poor mental health because i think they feel very isolated in their inability to understand how the average person thinks um, so I definitely, I, I agree. Um, and particularly, uh, I think it creates a lot of issues because, um, and primarily like, I, and, and let's kind of get into 
uh, the top, like the t- some of the meat of today, talking about paradigms of conversation and what the difference of them are. Um, and I think this is something that people completely misunderstand. Um, and, and there's two primary, primary paradigms, and I think you have a lot to say about this. You know, we have a dialogue and we have a debate. And a debate and a dialogue are drastically two different things. But the, the overarching de- paradigm that rules over America is the debate in, in, in atmospheres and situations where it doesn't make sense to necessarily debate, but it, it's still the, the main way that we communicate. So, like, what are your like, thoughts on that, if you have more details or something? Um, yeah, so in um, the, uh, the distinction between debate and dialogue is actually um, simpler if we use an analogy. Okay. So uh, if you ever, if someone ever asks you for directions to a place, right, let's say you uh, live in Chicago and someone calls you and says, I want directions to Navy Pier. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to need to know two things. You need to know who is this person. Well, three things. You need to know who this person asking is. You need to know where this person is at the current moment. And you are, and, and then you also need to know how familiar is this person with Chicago, with the with the general place. And mm-hmm. based on these three, only once you know these three information can you give directions to how to reach Navy Pier. You know, if you don't know where this person is, maybe this person is in is in Kentucky, but you just tell them to go on Jackson. Well, there it's not going to help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so with the the, the the distinction between dialogue and um, debate, um the audience, which is the person asking for the direction, is a little bit different in each case. In a dialogue, the person you're trying to give directions to is the person you're talking to, as in the subject, the object of your conversation, the the correspondent. In a debate, the audience you're trying to reach is not actually the person you're trying to talk to, but the audience that is watching that debate. Mm, so you're saying like, when I'm in a dialogue, I my intention is directed at the person that I'm talking to. But when I'm in a when I'm in a debate, my I don't really care to communicate anything necessarily to that person, but to the people who are watching a debate. Yes, that-, that is true. Yeah. I mean, if you notice, if you watch the presidential debates, um, I'm pretty sure none of them ever actually successfully convinced each other of anything. But their audience in, in this case, in that particular um setting is most clearly directed at the voters or the potential voters that is the audience so in that case that debate would be say well the debate the purpose of that debate is to is to um direct it at the audience not at each other mm. that's really good I, I i didn't i never thought of it like that uh i actually so the way that i tend to think about it and i think you're right in that so like when you're talking about a debate um, so like there's different, there's different rules and paradigms that go along with it, that, that it's assumptions that are made. Like you have to presume if you are debating that there is a right answer, right? There is a singular answer that one is right and the, and the other is wrong. Whereas like, and for just to distinguish it compared to a dialogue, a dialogue uh, assumes a paradigm where there are possibilities for multiple answers that maybe it's not necessarily one way to look at it like you can be right and so can the other person at the same time which is drastically different so yes it may be true that i'm uh, trying to communicate something directly particularly to my audience and so in the way that you're saying which i which is interesting to me uh and it's different than the way that i've typically thought about it which is that um which is that i'm simply trying to defeat an idea that they're communicating 
And that may even be directed at the person that I'm talking to. Like if, if they, because you should still have good listening skills, right? You're, you're in a debate. You shouldn't, you should, your, your goal should be geared at truth, not necessarily victory. Right. So even as a debater, even if like, let's say there's an audience of people and they're all listening, um, maybe I am trying to convince them. But if I'm an integral debater, in my opinion, anyway, then uh, I'm aiming at the truth, not what I think right at this moment, if that makes sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand what you're saying, because in my in my personal observation, and we might um, getting more into this later later down in this conversation, but uh, the most effective debates generally have been dialogues. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, it's just that the debate, the idea of a debate, it makes it inherently competitive. I think um, that's true. That's true. So when we when we when we frame something as a debate, we go into it with the expectation that one party is attempting to defeat the ideas of the other. Mm-hmm. Actually, and that's true. Okay, so then, so in terms of like miscommunication, do you think that in any form of the fashion that miscommunication is intentional in, in the debate? Like, like a resistance uh, to like refusing to clarify something because the, the, the whatever presumption the other person is making may be exactly their point. This is something that I, I was just recently thinking about it just came to mind uh not too long ago um that's an interesting question because there are people who generally believe the things that they say mm-hmm. and there are people that don't and mm-hmm. it's often hard to distinguish who the grifters are from, from who the authentic people are but in both cases i think it is possible for points to not be clarified okay um, for any amount of reasons um, part of uh, a misunderstanding is um, hinges from the failure to do the first part, which is locate the audience, oh, locate the status of the audience. So, you know, in, in the direction, in the giving directions analogy, the failure to locate where the audience is right now relatively to your position mm-hmm. and knowledge about them is usually the source of a lot of misunderstanding because most people go into presenting arguments or presenting points without having already located their audience. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's true. Even, even if you look at a book, I think most people assume that they can just read a book or even a historical text, but you can't really read the text without knowing who it's directed to and it won't make sense because you can read it. Um, I think the perfect example of this is the Bible, like not to get into that conversation, but the point is that the original audience that it was written to wasn't a 21st modern day citizen. So, and that's different how you will read it and how you'd interpret it and you'd understand it completely differently. And so that's really interesting that you're saying that most people don't try to under, well, and then even to know which audience you're commuting and identifying your your audience, which means you need to understand your audience there, uh, who they are which I think is important, not just for a large audience, but even if it's just a singular audience, like, like the debater or the dial or the other person in the dialogue. Yeah. And, um, you know, take the vaccine, for example, right. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people are skeptical about it. And then there's a good amount of people in the black communities are skeptical about it. And so if I, but the thing is, if I try to go and say, 
if I don't understand where they are in terms of their understanding and their um, feelings about the medical system, mm-hmm. then I can pre- I can present all the statistics I want about and all the process, all the CDC posts about you know how the vaccine is made, what it does, and it's not going to garner me trust in that vaccine because mm-hmm. I have not understood um, where that skepticism comes from, right? Um, right. If I, if I, for example, like take, take anti-vaxxers, right? There's two types of, there's two, there are two types of anti-vaxxers among many, right? There's the Jenny McCarthy types. And then there's maybe the person whose parents was in the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Right. Yeah. And these two people could both be against the vaccines, but the way the, the, the their their motivations and the core reason that they're anti-vaxxer would have been very different. And if I try to use the same arguments on both, um, it's doomed to a certain amount of failure. Okay, so uh, I know exactly what you talk about when you talk about the syphilis, uh, uh, the Tuskegee, uh, eh, Tuskegee syphilis experiments that they were doing. I I know exactly what you're referring to, so that makes sense. But what do you mean by the you said John, John McCarthy? Oh, Jenny McCarthy. Yeah, she's a former playmate um, who's come out against anti-vaccination. Okay. And what's her um, reason? Uh, I do not know. See, I don't, I don't want to claim to... I don't want to claim things that I do not know. I only have suspicions. <laughs> um, get, I, I suspect that uh, there's a little bit of money that goes into it. Okay, <laughs> okay. And then, and then there's, yeah, I've definitely seen some, like... Uh, conspiracies about like someone accidentally said that vaccines were being used for population control and stuff like that so i mean that makes sense when you're saying like well is the information that you're using to counter uh anti-vaccine is it actually addressing the reasons that they are in fact anti-vaccine yes that is true i mean even in the case that you just posed about suspicion that you know vaccines may be used to you know population control I mean, if, if we understood that the U.S. has a history of attempting population control, for example, in Puerto Rico, which is a particularly infamous case, mm-hmm. um, then we realize that this suspicion um, is not out of the it's not out of the sky. Um, there is a there is a, there are reasons why people may believe certain things. And if we want to get into a dialogue or even or a debate, either case, um, then it pays to to discover what those motivations and what those core, you know, origins of those ideas are um, and understand the person we're talking to before we try to present an argument. Mm, that's really good. And, and I think we, so, so, so what you're saying, part of this uh, issue is that we're way too presumptuous. Like we don't, when we ask questions, sometimes we're not a- aiming to ask questions for genuine understanding, but to, critique and attack and we 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 don't aim to know what we don't know about a person we just try to shove our idea down their throat before we have all the information we need to act um definitely projection is a big mistake that even the best of uh people's conversations um even people who are you know generally good at conversations will make everyone will make that mistake of presuming something about the person they're talking to that necessarily isn't true yeah that's good Okay, so something that I, I've been really interested in uh, revolve around this. Well, like what we've been talking about right now is primarily like I would say more congregational audiences, like larger ones, but even on the individual level. So what do you think about offense in terms of conversation? 
Because in my opinion, I and I think that people get this really wrong. I think offense is a useful tool in the conversation, personally. Um, I, I don't actually think about offense um, in, in, ter- in, in a dialogue um, because I'm more focused on whether I am, you know, communicating effectively or attempting to discern my my um my correspondent effectively and sometimes offense is a basically a a consequence of that process um i think that we, there is a there is a noticeable difference i think to, between saying saying something or inciting a reaction for the mm-hmm. purpose of promoting discomfort and discomfort that is aroused by the consequence of two people searching for truth so you're saying there's a difference between intentionally promoting discomfort by offending someone and inherently naturally running into discomfort as you try to find the truth because the truth discovering it in general is just discomforting. Um, yes, I think so. Um, because, you know, um, discomfort, when discomfort is comes as a result of searching for truth, um, mm-hmm. what it does is it, it hints to both parties or all parties involved that there is some there is a disconnect happening that there is a there is a void in knowledge and understanding and so uh, uh in, in to i agree with you on that case that you know offense could actually be very useful because it is a it is a signifier of those blind spots mm-hmm. and I, and i agree so that's that's essentially my point like i think there's a lo- there's loaded information in being offended that people judge too prematurely as a bad thing. Like if, and and I think this would dramatically help people's ability to listen. Like I think first we have to incentivize dialogue first. And because all they've, all people have particularly known is debate, right? So when in a dialogue, you're completely open to be offended because you're open to other people's ideas and you may not like them. But I think one of the the, um, powerful things about it is offense causes you to question like discomfort. Like if you're comfortable and you're like, let's say vegetable, you're in a vegetable state and I provoke you to discomfort, it's going to raise your attention. And so then you can begin to start asking questions like what has changed in my environment that I am now disturbed? Like when you're having a conversation, you should ask yourself. Like, what is my emotional reaction to what they're saying? And I think one of the really cool things about it is often you'll learn about yourself because you're learning why you're reacting the way that you do. So even if they disagree with you or you disagree with them and you don't necessarily like the information, you've you've essentially learned something about yourself because you you figured out why you reacted that way and you figured out how the information that you're presenting stands against the information that they're presenting. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that offense as as a feeling, although the feeling of being offended, I think it could be a catalyst for a lot of self-reflection, mm-hmm. even in cases when the other person is intentionally trying to hurt you. Yeah. Even in that case, the offense is useful because it could just be a tool that could be used to allow you to discern the intentions of another person. You can use that as an experience to learn something. Um and, you know, one of the hard things about having these conversations is sometimes it's hard to discern whether your correspondent is trying to provoke you or it is just an honest attempt 
to get at something, mm-hmm. and and some and being able to take offensive feelings, turn it over in your head, and then examine it is is very useful. Being able to even make that judgment. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're I think you're literally right in the nail. You're almost in my head about the way that I think about it because there's different levels of it. There's a person who's trying to offend you with the intention of giving you something good, right? So they have your best interests at heart. And the reason that you're offended could simply be a misunderstanding of what, why they're doing what they're doing. Like um, in a classic example, I could tell someone that their girlfriend or boyfriend is bad for them. I could tell them that their girlfriend is bad for them. And it, they could assume that my intention was simply to tear down their girlfriend or boyfriend. But my, my att- intention could very well be that I just am trying to protect and preserve their feelings um, as just a random example of kind of like of what we're talking about. But there are all the other cases. So kind of what I aim to do is one to normalize offense and discomfort because there's utility in it. But two, how do you stop yourself from taking offense is a different thing because not all offense is necessarily good, which is kind of like what we're mentioning. And I think if we were much more inquisitive about people, um, it would lead us to be less offended if we would open our ears and be willing to listen. Like, I think people talk about listening as if it's a, a service that you're doing to the other person and people don't present listening enough as a utility to yourself. Because if you listen, it, get, it opens you up for all kinds of things, information that you needed that you didn't know you needed. It stops you from react being so reactive to a person or up, 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 upsetting your emotional state all those kind of things yeah i would extend it even further and um say that you know we and this is not just offense but in like in every conversation like that there's a degree of uncertainty mm-hmm. um we're uncertain about uh whether a conversation may blow up into something that is terrible or we're uncertain that we, we may be misjudged or misinterpreted Mm-hmm. Or we might um, misinterpret the other. We have a lot of uncertainties in, in these conversations, and I don't believe I, I don't actually believe it is possible to eliminate that uncertainty. Um, but I do believe it is possible to equip people with the tools that they can confront it confidently. Mm. Um, as I say, while like drown in the uncertainty, but not drown, but like you know, embrace it, swim in it. It looks like we have a commenter like replying to. So I'm going to take this comment since it's only one of them and then we'll see what she says and keep going. Sure. Hello, gentlemen. I must say I definitely am adoring your stereo live right now. You guys are really coming with some great facts and I agree with you. I think, you know, if you can be if you can have a healthy mindset when somebody comes to, quote unquote, offend you in a good way, really, they love you enough and they have enough courage to speak truth over you and your life and your situation in the attempts that you will be better because of it. And I think if you can truly get to a point where you can humble yourself and listen to learn and to imply, you know, implement their words of wisdom, then you will be such a better person and you'll be able to grow mentally and spiritually, not only for yourself, but for those around you. The key word is humility, humility, because at the end of the day, we don't know everything, you know, and wise counsel can take you far. That's a good comment. I definitely, I, I appreciate that as a comment. I, I agree. Um, I think it, pre- pres- it presumes, it promotes wellness, but not even just wellness 
but I really want to capitalize on the utility that people are missing out on because they don't have these skills. I agree. That's a very good comment. Um, um, and, you know, humility is like this idea that there's all there. Your correspondent may always have insight into something that you don't. And that will always be true, even if on a particular subject matter, you might consider yourself an expert and the other one a novice. Um, mm -hmm. And that I think that's a core understanding that at some point, someone's going to know more about you about something than, than you about something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I agree. So, so, I mean, I, I kind of want to transition here. Like, and so we've, I think we've covered some good things. And I think now it's starting to get into some more of the technicalities of it. You know, um, I'm presenting this idea of world building, right? And so I, I mentioned to you how we have world, we all come from a worldview and that's inescapable. You cannot escape your worldview, which means in a, in a sense, I kind of think of it as literally like everyone lives on their own planet because they have presumptions that they're making. And so the, the planet that they, the atmosphere, like the air that they, that they're breathing in, in this metaphor that I'm making is the presumptions that they're making, the ideas and assumptions that are behind what motivate their worldview. So when I say grace um, as a secular person, I could be referring to uh, someone moving very delicately or intricately in a very pristine manner. But if I say grace in a religious context, it's, it's different. So there's a lot of presumptions that are behind this word. And so... Um, if you're going to have a productive conversation, and I think this is more necessary in a debate, actually, in my opinion, I think you need to create another planet in which both of you can coexist and breathe the same air. You need to agree on the presumptions that you're making when you're coming in. And I think this is something that creates a lot of circles and people uh, running back and forth over and over again in the same loop because they have not clarified these things. Like, what do you think about like that? Uh, first, I love the planet analogy. I think it's actually perfect for this particular idea. Um, and I, yeah, yes, you're right. I think creating a planet where the presumptions are agreed upon is critical. There is one critical step above it. And this step is why dialogue actually takes a long time, right? We think mm -hmm. of that. We typically think of dialogue in terms of maybe, oh, we talked for a few hours, but really it's like a year, years long process. Um, and that first step is you have to explore the other person's planet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have to, like, if I arrive on another person's planet and I wanted to, um, you know, I need, I need to f map it. Mm -hmm. And I, if I want to map it, I actually have to walk through it, mm -hmm. experience um, that planet. And that person would have to walk through my planet and experience my planet. Mm -hmm. And that's where the humility comes in. We have to explore the other's planet and only after we've explored each other's planet can we actually agree on what the presumptions are mm. and create the third planet. Because that third planet has to be habitable to both people. Right. Absolutely. Like we have to both be able to eat there. We need to be able to breathe there like if, like the oxygen. Yes. And I, so I, we're, we're on the same page. Uh, and I think you had an excellent example, actually. And maybe this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's a necessary one. You mentioned um, you made a post about uh, empathy. Uh, a post about empathy and you were talking about how people like misunderstand empathy as this thing where 
you walk a mile in another person's shoes. But the misunderstanding in that is people think that it's their perspective of walking in the shoes and they don't take the other person's perspective of walking in those shoes. I believe that was the premise of what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, take the shoe analogy, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, empathy, we, we think about, you know, when you put yourself in another person's shoe, you might wear those shoes differently than the other person. Mm-hmm. So you're not really necessarily understanding another person by approaching empathy that way and try to walk in their shoes what you really want to do is understand how they walk in their shoes first right and i agree i think it's very like i think and you mentioned it's very presumptuous to assume that everyone reacts the way that you do as if reactions are like uniform as if there are not a multitude of reactions that you could have to any one stimulus yeah, definitely. Um, you know, put like when you when you, when you when it, it is useful. I think, for example, it is actually useful. I think to be able to have a thought process that says, "What will I do in that situation?" Mm-hmm. But I think that will have to come second, right? That's yeah. It, that thought process is what you do after you've achieved a certain level of empathy, and you use that "What will I do?" question as a way to motivate yourself to take action to assist in a given. Um, situation Mm -hmm. so that part the what would i do is motivational but it it is not the understanding part the understanding comes before that and that requires a lot of questions and a lot of listening yeah and you're right and i think even further like adding to like what you're saying right now is not just that the the motivation to help but i think it's important to, uh, to if you really want to understand the way that they see it you need to under you need to understand the distinguishment between the way you would see it and the way they would. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, like my understanding, like to, you know, I, we, we, you know, if you take a, take the, go back to the Tuskegee experiment um, example, um, suppose I was talking to someone whose uh, parents or grandparents was involved in that. Um, I, I could say, what would I feel if my grandparent was subject to a, illegal government experiment with mortal risk uh, mm-hmm. without their knowledge unethically. Um, I actually would not be able to <laughs> do that, right? Right. I imagine I will feel horrified uh, because the idea of my grandparents being harmed in this way by outside party is untenable to me. But that, that feeling may spur me to action, but it wouldn't actually help me address um, inequalities and misconceptions in the healthcare system. Right. Um, it's just a it's just a motivator to get me going, but the direction has to be I have to understand exactly how they might see the healthcare system, mm-hmm. and that is something that right now, for example, because I haven't been able to talk to a survivor, to a exper- descendant of a Tuskegee experiment, for you know, I don't have that I don't have that yet. Right. Yet. And but um, and my goal, you know, always in that kind of just in the subject of healthcare. What I do have are people who are in the healthcare system who have been mistreated by it, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes their mistreatment is not to that degree, but it is there. And, you know, I have to draw as much insight as I can from that uh, before I make any judgment at all about how I should approach it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and then what was I going to say? Because that's a great point. Um, like, can, let me pause for a second. 
Oh, I remember what I was going to say now. So, and so I think everything that you're saying and just to tie it back into what we were, we were just talking about going back to conversation, dialogue and debate. Um, I think what we're talking about right now, the reason I brought it up in the first place is because I think this misconception is common in conversation because people, I think, I don't think once again, and I'm going to keep repeating this because I think it's important. I don't think people think about empathy in the right way. Like not simply because of the misunderstanding we've already communicated, but they, once again, they only view empathy as a service and not as a utility, right? Like this is, this is common. Like if we're going to, understand the planet right like like the the plant going back to the planet metaphor that we created if i go visit their planet i cannot observe their planet from how my body reacts to the atmosphere it's necessary for me to know how my body reacts to the atmosphere if i could breathe the air that they breathe but it's more necessary for me to know why they can breathe the atmosphere that they can breathe like what chemicals are in the soil what is the what's is it mainly nitrogen in the air? Is it mainly oxygen in the air? That's more important to being on their planet than me walking on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and actually I think there's a great way to think about this, right? Let's suppose you have let's put it in more physical terms, right? Let's suppose you are talking to someone, you you're visiting another person's planet, and you're from Earth. So your composition, the air you're used to breathing is gonna be 70% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and then other stuff. Mm-hmm. But let's say that person's planet is reversed, right? It is 70% oxygen and 20% nitrogen and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the way I would react to the atmosphere is going to be very different from the way that person reacts to the atmosphere. Mm. Even though we're breathing the same atmosphere now, um, because I come from a different planet. And so that's why the putting yourself in another person's shoe is not always useful. Because yes, you can breathe the same air. But if you're coming from a different planet, you're going to respond differently. It is more useful in this case to observe how that other person uh, interacts with their atmosphere mm. than it is yeah. to try to place yourself, you know, self-insert into that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's really good. And so, like, so the reason all of this is important is I think the, the kind of things that we're talking about, we're talking about planet building, world building and creating an atmosphere where both people understand is because like you said, there's already already uncertainty that a person's going to misunderstand me. We know we can't declare declaratively say, or def, definitively say that a person will not misunderstand me, that they won't get under um, offended and all of these other things. This is, uh, this already makes it volatile. And I think it just makes it more volatile when you're looking at um, controversial topics. When you're looking at controversial topics, these are these the necessity for the things that we're talking about are amplified so much more because it's so easy to look at the idea. And when it's such a grandiose idea or a large idea to take offense to it like. And I'm going to use a, I, I keep I always, this is my common exaggerated example uh, like Hitler, like it's insane for me to think that I would agree with Hitler and see things the way that he sees them. Right. But most people look at like, for example, a Adolf Hitler from the immorality that they presume when they're going to look at the way that he thinks, but you need to like, if you want to understand the deep implications about, about such a controversial subject, 
You don't need to think like, let's say, Amir or Come For Free or David. You need to think like Adolf Hitler. You need to understand like the motivations behind what drove him to do what he did, even if it's something as extreme as genocide. And that's, yeah, that's, that's hard to say. Yeah, definitely. That's hard to say um, because we have no insight into his life experience. And right. we, we also don't have a lot of insight into the experiences of those who followed him. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's very hard, you know, um, there are neo-Nazis still walking around. So the, the <laughs> opportunity, there, there is opportunity to have that discussion if, you know, we are, you know, sufficiently willing to be very uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> yeah. To have it. Um, but the, 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 the understanding of, you know, like, and this is another classic case where we might run into certain, certain issues, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, when we, when we talk, when we talk to um, modern versions of the neo-Nazis, the ones, um, and then we, and then we, we, we can talk about, you know, um all sorts of things like why is this wrong you know this is so this is immoral this is immoral and you know we can we can give them all our arguments um but because their entire construct the entire world is built on a different set of premises fundamentally different premises mm -hmm. um if they re like you know most of us says you know it is not good to kill people right Mm -hmm. um, but it is not good to kill people. But most of us have this, you know, extra caveat. For example, it is all it is bad to kill people, but it is permissible if your life is in mortal danger. Right. Right. But mm -hmm. the thing is, if if a certain group of people believe that they're in mortal danger, even when maybe they're not, then they could be persuaded to kill. Right. And that's the real issue is that we, 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 in that case, if you try to make a moral argument that is wrong to kill, it's not going to work on these people <laughs> because their entire world construct is built around the idea that they truly are in mortal danger, in which case killing does become permissible. And, and I that's think... a... mm -hmm. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I should say that's a very hard um, thing to navigate. And, and I agree. And I think, you know, going so like, one of the things that we wanted to touch on today as an example of all of the things that we're talking about was a Jordan Peterson debate with the British author uh, writing about feminism. Um, it was pretty popular, pretty controversial as well. Uh, the danger of ideologues, right? Like, mm -hmm. like the danger of assuming all of one idea that's presented to you, right? Like as it is, like not utilizing your human agency to agree and disagree with whatever it is that you want to which ironically okay so this is important to mention as well there is you can and i don't think people understand this often you can understand something and still disagree with it and i think that's a big misunderstanding people make like i think when it really turns some people's heads when you say i understand and then you say, I disagree, because typically their reaction is that you disagree because you don't understand. <laughs> and so then they try to explain more as if you don't understand the idea that they communicated. But it's not that you don't understand. It's that you just don't agree. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people just don't get to that point even. <laughs> 
<laughs> like that's like that's like um that's like trying to you know begin a monopoly game 60% of the way through um and i think a lot of cases um yeah we don't even get to that point where we can say well we uh, when people say we agree to disagree genuinely they, we understand each other and we still disagree that's actually i think pretty rare yeah i agree um and and it's because we live on the planet of debate like i think really truly people do not know what dialogue is <laughs> they don't know they're not familiar with it people if you said dialogue to somebody i think their natural reaction would still be debate like oh yeah i know what a dialogue is and in their head whether they realize it or not they're saying it's a debate like yeah they, no, that's true <laughs> yeah like people can, and i think the com- the confusion is uh, they confuse dialogue with communication. Debate and dialogue are both forms of communication, but they're not the same style of communication. Yeah, and I think it's also like a like a trap that because some of the best debates are dialogues, mm-hmm. that you know people also just starting to assume that dialogues are debates. So that yeah. yes, I have to win this thing. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and I think, and I think. That's a dangerous premise. Like, okay, maybe in some instances you're so convinced of an idea that you think it's drastically more important to actually win um, than not because whatever, maybe you believe that whatever idea is being spread is dangerous and it needs to be defeated. That's fine. That makes sense. But that's not usually the case. Like, it's never something so extreme and so absolute that you know without a shadow of a doubt, like, what this person knows and why they make the conclusions they make. Um, and I think something very interesting to look at is character when it comes to that, which is why I think it's very dangerous when you disagree with an idea to attack a person. Oh, I, I of course. Yeah. I, that's, um, that's actually like the people attack persons usually because they're trying to be a debate. Right. So if, we're, if I'm trying to get an audience on my side, then insulting my opponent strategically is actually a very good, I good way to do that. Right. If I have an audience, yeah. I, mean, I want them riled up on my side. Um, in in most cases, um, the mo- most powerful um, transformative um, discussions are dialogues in which, you know, if I actually wanted to achieve a mutual understanding, yeah, uh, insulting them is actually like the number one way to make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, so let's, let's kind of examine some of like, like just using examples and like, we got about 20 minutes left, 15 minutes left. Let's just look at some examples like in this debate, because I think it's very controversial ideas. Um, very controversial ideas. Um, and and what often is the response out of what they do is to attack the people because they that thing was loaded. It, it was talking about Republican versus Democrat. It was talking about the LGBTQ community, trans identity, um, if multiculturalism is a bad thing, if tribalism is a good thing, like all of the, and this big idea of tyrannical patriarchy, which kept appearing. And I kind of think that's one of those revolving doors that they went through uh, over the two hour debate that they had. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, by the time, but by, by the first 10, seven minutes and nine seconds, it, it was already going to be a circle jerk of a sort. <laughs> <laughs> this particular conversation. Um, 
And actually, like, we don't even have to really go through the entire one hour, 42 minutes of it. I think just in the first 10 minutes, there is a case study for how this conversation is not actually handled mm -hmm. very well. Not, 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 not in terms of blaming a particular person, just this conversation as a gestalt whole is not a very good one. Um, right. And part of that is, um, I, and this is an experiment for anyone who's actually, actually watched this interview. This is Jordan Peterson with Helen Lewis for British GQ. Um, during the entire discussions about patriarchy, I actually have, and I noticed this, and I think people who watch this might notice this, I have no idea what definition of patriarchy is Jordan Peterson operating on. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> right? Be and that's that's an insight that 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 should be that should be that we should keep in the back of our heads. And second, we are not very clear on what Helen Lewis's definition of patriarchy is, and because she kind of jumps around all over the place. And mm -hmm. the one thing that I noticed, for example, um, there was a tip for tat where they had in the beginning where Helen Lewis, you know, poses like rape statistics. Mm -hmm. You know, she says women are raped more. And yes, that's true. Statistically, women are raped more. And then Jordan Peters encounters with the statistics that say, you know, women, men have greater rates of suicide, incarceration, etc. Mm -hmm. And fundamental to this discussion is that there was no definition of what patriarchy is, that both yeah. are not necessarily operating on the same one, right? If mm -hmm. we define, if Helen Lewis is defining patriarchy as a system where men, ex where women experience more harm, um, then Jordan Peterson's statistics would easily demolish that presumption, mm -hmm. right? You know, men commit more suicide and have greater incarceration rates. Those are the arguments that you use to defeat that premise. Right. Whereas if I define patriarchy, for example, as a system in which men hold more power, then Jordan Peterson's statistic does not necessarily contradict that definition or that mm. premise because a system where men hold more power, men will suffer more at the hands of other men. Right. So it is not the case necessarily that the premise that we have to be operating on is that a patriarchal system you know, injures women more than men by some sort of measurements. But you know, at the strict definition of patriarchy from Merriam-Webster, in which case a system in which men hold dominant power in the structure, mm -hmm. then it is quite possible that the ceiling for men is higher, but so is the floor. Right. That makes that's real. That's real. Wow. That's that's really good insights. Okay, I understand exactly. And that goes back to what you said earlier when you mentioned like, um, did you understand uh, the person enough to know which premises you needed to defeat? or to address, like with the vaccines? Like, did I address the real reason that they're anti-vaxxers or did I just counter an example that you could be an anti-vaxxer? True, yeah, and in this particular example, I think Jordan Peterson came off, I think, very strong because what he did, and, I, and what, what he did is that he was focused on contradicting his correspondence prem uh, premises. Yes. So when, when Helen Lewis presented the rape statistic, she was hinting a premise that patriarchy is a system that leads to more suffering for women by some objective measurements. Mm -hmm. And so in order to counter that premise, in order to attack that premise, um, all he has to do is respond with some contradicting statistics about suffering. Right. Um, in this, so in this case, like Jordan Peterson isn't really, we're, we're get, actually getting no real insight into Jordan Peterson's worldview. 
mm-hmm. he's, he's sort of just like a mirror at this point. And I think he did that intentionally so, to a degree. Maybe it wasn't the most effective, but I think, and he mentions this throughout the video, he talks about how, like, the damage that it does to society because when you define something, it inherently has a uniforming effect, which means that when you define it, you unilaterally only view it as the thing in which you defined, which he was arguing, I think, has drastic effects on the mental health uh, and the well-being of men. Um, and I think that's why he was like, because she was feminist in nature, he wasn't aiming to contradict her just for the sake of contradicting her. He was aiming to contradict her to, to, to kind of prove his point, I would say, and which was the case that look at what the damage of what your ideology is doing. Yeah, I mean, that's, I say, Jordan Peterson, I think, I think definitely has a, 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 he has, you know, views of his own for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's doing really well in this debate is um, not f- doing the best. He's doing a better job in this debate, not falling into a trap of, pr- of um, I think, it, for, I think he's doing more to probe Helen Lewis's planet. Mm-hmm. And Helen Lewis has, um, you know, done in return. And for the record, um, in terms of actual, you know, views, my biases and as a bias disclaimer, I disagree with Jordan Peterson on a lot of this, um, mm-hmm. but you know it is. It, but it is not. It is not to say that his approach to this dialogue was effective because he was testing the other person's planet. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. That makes a lot. And I I can agree with that. Um, I think yes, he did a, like because her he she kind of and I don't, I don't necessarily know who I agree with. I'm still in a lot of contemplation about the ideas that were communicated. Because uh, it's something I've been thinking about, but his he did a he did a really good job. Uh, he she kind of took the bait in um, kind of putting the focus and poking the holes in her thing. So yes, he did a good job at kind of probing her planet in in or a better job than she did. Not necessarily a good job, but also that in that he was simultaneously using that to poke holes in the things that she was saying, which left him less available to to have his holes poked. Yeah, it's like a it's like a boxing match almost in this way. <laughs> yeah, um, and the thing is, like th- th- this this also, this discussion is also interesting because it is actually there is an audience for this. It is not necessarily the closed personal dialogue between two people that is focused on each other necessarily. Um, I imagine that they know that there's an audience watching it. As of right now, there's 23 million views. Right. <laughs> um, so I think that. It is. It, I think that to some degree, both are influenced by an idea that they want to reach out to an audience, as opposed to each other. Um, I think that. I think that, and I think that's the root of um, what Helen Lewis's mistake in this one is that she wasn't probing his planet back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would And I think that had she done so, I I don't think that this debate would have necessarily been more convincing to either people's um, worldview. But mm-hmm. I think it would have been much more interesting and productive conversation, even for the audience. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I agree with you. Another point that, like, I just wanted to bring up that I thought, like, there was a point where he was taught, they were talking about homosexuality. And I think this is a big, big one going into the offense and the things that we were talking about. Like, people slammed him for this. There were people who were making fun of him and calling him an idiot because of his arguments and basically saying how, uh, uh, 
uh, humans are um, pair. They they pair bond. They pair bond for. Um, they pair bond to parent, right? Um, and so they people took that as he was communicating that homosexuality. He was against it, and maybe he is. Um, I think he is actually, but more of what he was saying, his intention in saying that was not to disprove homosexuality. His premise in saying that was to say that all we know about parenting at the point is that it's sufficient, it's necessary at the bare minimum for a person to have two parents. Now, whether, and he specifies this, now whether or not um, uh, the male-on-male and female-on-female parents, parent-pair bonds, is damages the child is something that we don't have enough information to make a statement about. And he clear, he says this, and, but people I think were offended because they assumed that his intention was to use that as evidence to prove, disprove homosexuality. When in fact, at the end of the video, he goes on to say that we know that homosexuality has been around for a really, really long time. It's nothing new and it's common in, in a lot of animal species as well. Yeah. I mean, the omission that the study of, um, you know, homosexuality and also, you know, just in general, the LGBTQ uh, community is, is, is in fact relatively new. <laughs> there, there is uh, quite a bit that we found out, but there's also a whole lot more that we don't know. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and you know, partly because it's the open discussion of that, in at least in the United States, the open discussion of the LGBTQ community, the open discourse is relatively recent. Um, but yes, I think that, um, and also, you know, it, it's one thing to assume, you know, you know, Dr. Peterson's making a scientific statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it would be a mistake to automatically assume that a scientific statement is necessarily a moral or ethical one. Mm, that's and good. I think, I think that what happened was that, you know, whether or not, whatever Dr. Peterson's personal moral ethical views on homosexuality is, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. And I set that aside. But as far as that exact claim that he's making, he's not making an ethical or moral claim about homosexuality. Right. Um, he's not saying necessarily homosexuality is morally ethically wrong. Um, merely that it is a, that the scientific uh, biological um, conclusions that we so far as we know is that, you know, we generally tend towards um, biological male, and biological female parenting as a mm-hmm. as a pair. Um, and so, yeah, he, it leaves it, it actually does leave, you know, taken at his word, taken without context, just taking people at their word, which is a useful tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, there is no reason to, to think necessarily just from those words that there is, you know, that said moral ethical assumption. And I think people made that assumption on their own. Yeah, uh, it may be the case. Um, as I don't know too much about Doctor Doctor Peterson's um actual. In order to in order to know more about what what Doctor Peterson's ethical moral views are, I would have to examine more about his you know political positions and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and before I can derive any conclusions from that, but yeah, I think that people may have prematurely um conflated the two. He's making right. a statement of um bio- biology. He's not making a statement of morality. Yeah, that's good. That's a very good and necessary clarification, man. And I think what you've offered in in offering that is just how complex it is, because I mentioned one vein of intention and you mentioned a completely different vein of intention, which has to do with which which uh, 
which mechanism, which theory of thinking is he coming from? Is it biology? Is it ethics? Is it morality? Is it like, what is, what is it? And in science, is it statistical? Is it evidential? Like what, what are you basing it on? Is it just correlation? Are you assuming causation? Like there's, it's just like, I think it's interesting what you're saying. Like dialogue takes much, much, much longer. Um, which I think should also inherently mean that debate takes longer if you're going to have an effective one, um, as we've kind of already supposed, but it's much more complex than we've given it credibility for. Yeah, I had a recent I had a recent conversation with uh with someone about, you know, about the you know, people being transgender and this person, you know, we we for example and here's an example of how we you know we we're, we're the same evidence, the same information could could be seen differently, you know, completely differently in two different planets. Uh, we brought up the statistics of heightened rates of abuse and sexual assault towards self-identified transgender individuals when they're young. Mm -hmm. And his in his worldview, in his planet, he has interpreted this to mean that kids experiencing um, identifying as transgender or experiencing gender dysphoria do so as a result of that abuse. Mm. He puts the he puts the transgender after the abuse. And I do the opposite. In my planet, uh, people are abused because they're transgender. So that 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 same statistic you know we, by but we looked at that same statistics and based on our planet, we have completely reverse, a complete reversal of the cause and effect relationship. Mm. Right, so, because there's a correlation, but you don't necessarily know which way that the causa causality goes. Right, and we and and so in that moment, that's when I knew that if I keep presenting data, it's not going to get us anywhere. Because mm. he's going to interpret that data based on his context, and so. He, what I have to do now is figure out what his context is. Mm. And if I believe his context is wrong, then I have to figure out how to deconstruct his context. But the trick is I cannot deconstruct his context. Only he can deconstruct his context if right. he chooses to. And um, that's where like the, the hard, hard question comes in. And that's why I love Socrates so much. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I think uh, this is very productive. I, I think right now we'll kind of we kind of wrap it up with like some closing remarks first. Um, before we do that, like just thank you because this has been very, 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 very good conversation that I think will be useful to a lot of people, and I've just enjoyed it a lot myself. Uh, I'm glad I could like uh, connect with you in this way. This is this has been really fun. Um, but any of the last things, ideas that I would want to leave, um, and this is going to be my final remark, and then I'll I'll let you close out. Um, there was a video that I saw that was talking about be careful when you're communicating with people because if you say something to them and, uh, and it, what you're saying assumes that they are wrong, then there, a lot of people's ego will get in the way and they won't really be willing to hear you out. He said, instead, you should acknowledge, um, you should, you should acknowledge the issue. You shouldn't say, uh, you're wrong. You should really say, well, here's my problem with that. Not here, not here's my problem with you, but here's my problem with that. So that way you're not attacking them and assuming that they're wrong. You're just, you're just saying that you disagree with that idea and distinguishing that. And I thought it was good advice. 
but I essentially disagreed with it. And the reason that I disagreed with it is because I think it's in, it's necessary to have the intention to normalize people dealing with that discomfort and that offense to make them realize for themselves to question stuff. Like I'm not always going to give you the luxury of comfort because life won't always give you the luxury of comfort. And so that's my final remark um, for this, for this conversation. Any final thoughts for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, like going back to the Navy pure analogy is that, you know, we, we make that critical mistake of trying to give directions to a certain place when we don't know where that person even is. Mm-hmm. And part of the discomfort that you mentioned coming from that is that sometimes people may not have a clear sense of where their own place is themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Socratic method and asking question comes in because it helps the other person through those questions discover where they are and vice versa helps us discover where we stand. Um, and then we might, you know, through this process, discover that we really don't like where we are right now. Mm. And w- once that happens, we might not even need more nudging from an outside party to get us to move. We'll move mm-hmm. on our own, right? One, if we have, if we, we have been asked questions, forced to reflect on the question, made uncomfortable by the question, and that question has led us to a conclusion that where we are standing right now is not a place we want to be, we'll mm-hmm. move on our own. Um, we don't need we don't need the, the outside impetus of a debate trying to you know beat down on us some new ideas. We will we will navigate on our own accord. Mm. Um, and to go through that um, that thing that you just I think the final note is you know one thing that I'm more interested in like it's really interesting to you know explore what people believe. I'm more interested in why people believe things. That's good. That's good. That's really good. That's really good. I actually just made a work quote the other day that says you will not understand what a person's beliefs are unless you understand why they believe them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, reframing dialogue from that basis um, is probably going to get us much further than especially when we deal with issues that are extremely important Mm -hmm. and pertinent. Um, Unfortunately, you know, national scale or international scale dialogue is not conducive. Um, because we like to see immediate results and that kind of dialogue will take decades. Yeah, that's wow. That's that's good insights, even for me, like to realize how much longer the process is than I even understood is necessary. And that's really good. So I'm thankful for that. Um, Anyways, uh, man, great episode. I hope you guys enjoy this uh, and we'll catch you next time. Yep. Thanks for having me, Amir. Okay, that's the end of this episode. If you like this kind of content and or just want to support me and what I'm doing, you can go to the entire video at Stereo.com slash comfort underscore free. Or you can support me on my Patreon page, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash comfort free conversations. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash comfort free conversations. Thanks and catch you next time.